Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and we will get you the text. You're going to need that, digital or printed. And when you get that, go to the 15th chapter of Mark's gospel. I've been waiting for a couple months to say chapter 15. We've been in 14 for a while. We are in the last two chapters of Mark. And here's a prediction. I think we'll end this gospel by the end of the month. I think our last time in it will be uh, the last Sunday in October, which is kind of bittersweet because this has been an awesome ride uh, through this gospel. And uh, some of you have asked, where are we going next? Um, No promises, but I think we'll go to the Old Testament. We like to kind of go old, new, old, new. And I think we'll be in a minor prophet. Uh, And it'll be a shorter study, way shorter than a year and a half, probably just be a month or two. Um, But don't hold me to it. I'll let you know uh, by the end of October. All right. We're going to pick up in the opening verse. There's a lot here for us today. Um, There's two main theological reflections I want to have with you on the back half of this message um, that I think hopefully will speak to you. So pick up in verse 1. It reads this. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So let's remember where we are in the story. It's now early Friday morning. Jesus has spent the long night in jail. He's been severely beaten. He's been bruised. He's been shackled. He's been spit on. And then remember in verses, chapter 14, verses 53 through 65, he's been condemned to death by the Jewish court called the Sanhedrin. That was two weeks ago. But here's the reality. For them, under Roman occupation, the Jewish court did not have the authority to carry out capital cases with capital punishment. So they had to go and convince the Roman governor uh, to do so. And so the high priest does that. Um, He has to convince Pontius Pilate that Jesus has committed such high crimes that he deserves execution by the state. Crucifixion. It says in verse 1, it says they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, quick note, Roman legal proceedings apparently would happen at daybreak because it was custom for Roman nobility by mid-morning to be off work and doing leisurely pursuits, which is like, I read that and I thought, what a nice life. Like you just start early, you're done by 11, and then, you know, you go do what you do. All right? So that's what it says in verse 1. It says, as soon as it was morning, daybreak is when Roman legal proceedings happened. Here's the next question we need to ask. What does history tell us about this man, Pontius Pilate? First off, he wouldn't be famous without ordering the execution of Jesus. He would just be another governor in the long list of forgotten Roman governors. His official title was Prefect, Prefect Pilate. Um, Pilate was the fifth and the longest Roman uh, governor of Palestine. He ruled from 26 AD to 37, that's the longest. But he had quite a track record with the Jewish people. On one occasion, Um, Remember from a few Sundays past, uh, the Jews had a a, a custom, uh, a law to not have images of human beings uh, anywhere in their society. It felt like that was idol worship. And so Pilate, uh, knowing this, uh, 
began to change the, the Roman uniforms to bear the image of Caesar on their uniforms and on their equipment. I mean, he did this just really to, to get at the Jewish people. This leads to a massive protest at Pilate's palace, which was 70 miles away. The, the people in Jerusalem marched 70 miles all the way to his home and staged a five-day nonviolent protest to the point where Pilate had to end uh, his campaign. So what you find with Pilate is that he had protest after protest. He was a brutal man. He was a political man. And he was in power for the longest time in this area. So pick it up in verse 2. You need to know that Jesus is dealing with a fiercely political individual. Verse 2 reads this. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused Jesus of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. So get the scene in your head. Imagine a massive hall in the palace to accommodate the priests, the Roman prefect, his, his staff, his aides, the temple police, the soldiers, and then Jesus shackled, bleeding, bruised, standing before them. And it's a scene where the chief priests are hurling accusation after accusation against Jesus as he stands there. They're clearly worried that Pilate won't heed their case. But Pilate then turns to Jesus in verse 4, and he asks, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they're bringing against you? You see, we often forget this, but practically, Jesus' execution is not a sure thing in this moment. Pilate could overturn it in an instant. He could easily dismiss the priests, whom he did not like. They were always playing power games. And he could not give them what they wanted that day. All Jesus needs to do in this moment is answer Pilate's question and refute their claims. One rebuttal is all it would take. But Jesus doesn't do that. He just stands there staring at them in silence. To the point where they're all stunned. And it says in verse 5 that Pilate stood there amazed at his silence. If you were on death row and the president gave you the ability of pardon by simply refuting these claims against you, I think we would all speak up. But Jesus, his whole identity, his whole mission is completely formed by what he's read in his Bible by what he's read in the prophet Isaiah, 800-year-old prophecy from this moment here in the morning. It's the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. His whole identity is shaped by this. What he's supposed to do and not do is shaped by this one chapter that we've read in the past. Let me just highlight the main verse that shows you his silence. It's verse 7, should be on the screen of Isaiah 53. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. 
so he opened not his mouth. This is the text that really showed Jesus what it meant to be the suffering Messiah. He believes, this is so deep in Jesus' conscience. If you were to spend time with him, remember, three times he, he warns the disciples, I will be delivered over and I will be killed, but I will rise again. And they just couldn't understand it, right? This, this shapes what he thinks will happen. He believes that by playing this self-sacrificial role that has an 800-year prophecy behind it, that if he plays this role, that the kingdom of God will come in his resurrection on earth as it is in heaven. And so he says nothing. He submits that it must be this way. In verse 3, it says that the chief priest accused him of many things. What were they? Well, one that they accused him of was blasphemy. But the Roman prefect, Pilate, he, he did not pay attention to that charge of blasphemy. He, he could care less. That made no, different, no difference to Pilate's world. He's not, he's not a Jewish believer. He would have easily dismissed that kind of case with the flick of his hand and said, you know, he's innocent. I have no time for this. But claiming to be king, Messiah, this spelt political trouble for Jesus. The empire of Rome did not hold power for as long as they did by being tolerant. They held power by being tyrannical. Rome crucified would-be kings. End of story. That's the policy. And so look at the one accusation that Pilate asked Jesus about in verse 2. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Are you claiming to be king, to be ruler, to be higher than me, the prefect of Rome? That catches his attention. That's what he's concerned about. But Jesus does not answer him. He says, if you say so. And so the trial goes on. Verse 6. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for, for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Let's stop there. Matthew, in his gospel, this is an interesting detail, he records that Pilate's wife had a dream the night before Jesus showed up at their palace. That she had this dream, and she rushes this aid to Pilate, her husband, with a message while Pilate was sitting there holding court with Jesus and the high priest. It's recorded in Matthew 27, verse 19. It reads this, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, so that's Pilate, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Isn't that a wild detail to the story? She might have had some kind of prophetic intuition. I don't know. But she has this dream where she realizes Jesus is innocent. He is righteous. Have nothing to do with him. What does Pilate do? As it says in verse 10, well, let's back up. What you have to understand is that the Roman prefect has the power to pardon 
the sentence of any criminal. He can do that. He can use executive order to his advantage. And in light of the fact that this Galilean man in custody seems innocent, he can pardon him. As it says in verse 10, Pilate believes the priest handed him over out of envy. It's a power game. And so Pilate reasons in his mind that he can win political favor with the crowd by releasing Jesus, this popular miracle worker, and he can one-up these high priests and not give them what they want. But his plan, it backfires. Look at verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So this is, this is not Pilate's plan. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged or flogged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate does not want another protest on his hands. Just four years from now, in 37 AD, Pilate will be terminated from his post because he had too many protests. He couldn't handle them. He didn't quell them like he was supposed to. And clearly, Pilate has his doubts about Jesus' guilt. He asks why. What has he done? His wife has a dream, right? But remember, Pilate is a political actor, and he has nothing politically to gain by releasing Jesus. And so Pilate summons him, what does it say in verse 15, to flogging and to crucifixion, knowing that he's likely innocent. Flogging was a cruel and merciless preparation for death by crucifixion. This would happen every time. The historian Josephus, he gives us some detail on how cruel it was. Joseph says, Josephus says that the prisoner would be stripped, they'd be bound to a post, they'd be beaten with a leather whip, and that whip had woven within it bits of bone or metal. There was no maximum number of whips that was prescribed. The scourging would lacerate and strip the flesh, exposing bones and, and, and even organs at times. And its purpose was to shorten the duration that the criminal would suffer on the cross, shorten that time and deliver death. Women were exempted from both suffering, women that were crucified, women were crucified, but they were exempted from flogging or scourging, um, and they were exempted from witnessing it. There's a emperor, I believe it was Domitian, where a historian wrote that he was so horrified by the practice that he never once watched. Your average Roman citizen uh, did not speak about crucifixion. Um, it was so grotesque and taboo that they put it far from their minds. Now, here's something that is interesting. Place a Roman citizen or a Jewish citizen of this time in today's time where people wear a crucifix or a cross as jewelry and, and they would be speechless. <laughs> it was so taboo for them, right? Because the cross was a political symbol, a grotesque symbol, before it was a religious and redemptive symbol. The scholar N.T. Wright, he, he details how the cross 
was the ultimate symbol of Rome's power. It said, we are in charge here, and if you get out of line, this is what happens to you. They would crucify people on the main highways, the Roman roads, leading in and out of cities. So it was clear who's in charge and what happens if you threaten that. The Romans had crucified thousands of rebels during Jesus's time as a boy in Galilee. He was aware of crucifixion. He probably saw crucifixions. They would crucify thousands more of the Jewish people in 70 AD when Jerusalem, as Jesus predicted, was invaded. And apparently, as the scholars and historians show us, they got so bored by crucifying so many people that they experimented with them by hanging them in different positions until they ran out of wood. This is a brutal practice. And so went Jesus's passion. This, in Mark 15, is the fateful day God in Christ was put on trial and was condemned to brutal death. So, now that we've gone through the account, I want to give these two theological reflections on what took place that day. The first one is concerning man or humanity, and the second one is concerning God. Okay? I'm going to invite you to think with me here. The first is this. Humanity can be incredibly backwards. Incredibly backwards. Think about this. The two greatest institutions the world has ever produced, its oldest religion, Judaism, and its greatest political empire, Rome, are responsible for the death of God. Think of that. The very religion God created killed him. For all of our vast human accomplishments, we are still a people who can be so corrupted by sin and by our folly. God comes to the world and we kill him. This is the dark fact that sits right at the center of human history. And too often, churches want to quickly move past it and not sit with it. The incarnation is the greatest exposure of just how wrong we can be. The world's oldest religion, known for its sacred scriptures, the Torah and the prophets and its poetry, they call God incarnate in his trial a blasphemer. They're his scriptures. They're about him, and they say he's a blasphemer. And the most successful and accomplished empire the world's ever known calls God incarnate in Jesus a rebel, a false king who doesn't know his place. This shows how wrong and backwards our humanity can be at times. That's the first reflection. My second one is concerning the humility of God. Look at what God in Christ Jesus subjects himself to. I mean, really think about that. God allows himself in Christ to be put on trial, trial by the very creatures he made. 
I remember watching The Passion of the Christ from Mel Gibson and that trial scene of the Sanhedrin just really stood out to me. First, first uh, Colossians chapter 1, that Christ, all things have been made through him and by him. Every human being has been made by the, the power of that second member of the triune God, Christ. And he's subjecting himself to their accusations, to their beating, to be condemned to death by men, to be slapped, to be spit on, to be brutally flogged and then crucified by them. I mean, I just look at all that. I look at chapter 15 and the thought comes to mind. God subjects himself to humanity completely. What kind of humility are we dealing with here? God humbles himself before man so that he can save man. God loves humanity at a power we'll never know. It looks absurd to us when we really consider what happened. No one can conceive of the length and the height and the depth of the Almighty's mysterious love for humanity. It's the greatest mystery at the center of the universe. Why is God so for man when man at times can be so against God? And the only way to answer that is this. God is not like us. <laughs> He's not like us. God is wholly other, completely. And what sets God apart is not only his infinite perfections in glory, but what sets God apart is his infinite affections of love. This is what should stun us when we consider the one we've attached these three letters to, God. Love and happiness or joy is what sets God apart from every other reality we'll ever come in contact with. Jonathan Edwards, American theologian, 1700s, he said, God is the happiest being in the universe. The infinite joy and love that circulate through the triune God is beyond any power or Mount Everest or nuclear phenomenon that we'll ever conceive of. God's joyful and God is insanely loving. It says in, I believe it's Hebrews, that the angels stare into this love, into this gospel, and they're just confused by God's love for his creatures. One of the greatest revelations of all scripture it comes at the end of scripture, at the end of the scripture's writings. It comes from the longest living apostle, which was John, who was arguably Jesus' closest friend, if, if you read the gospels close enough. John, in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 7, he says this, God is love. Just three words. It takes the entire biblical story at the end to put down in an unmistakable three words, God is 
love. That this is the real God who is there when you utter his name in prayer. This is the God who has been, who is, and who will be. This is the infinite reality that draws near when you call on his name. A love that's beyond anything. And God made human beings. He made creatures to share in this life of infinite love and joy that he has between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So often we can look at our world and we see all the sin and suffering. And it's so easy to become cynical and pessimistic and to even question life itself. Especially in worlds where they really suffer. Parts of the world where they really suffer. And one of the things that holds back the doubt and the cynicism is to look at the God who's at the center of this universe, who's created it all, and to know that he is infinitely loving towards us, infinitely good. First John also, he writes in the first chapter, he says, he, he, says, he goes on and on, he says, this is the main message that we've received from Christ. He says, God is light, and there is no darkness in him. The greatest question humanity that you, you will ever deal with is this. Is God good or not? It's the very thing that the serpent questions at the beginning in the garden. Is God good? And when we read his gospel, we read what he subjected himself to to in Christ. The conclusion is clear. And you were made to eternally be in relationship with this God who is love. I mean, it's a blessing to be alive, no matter what you've been through. No matter what you're going through right now, no matter what suffering might come, when the doubt and the worry creep in about life and its purpose, you must remember the God that Jesus Christ shows us hanging on the tree. It is a God of infinite love and of infinite joy. And God, through Christ, will bring you home into that eternal love and joy. The picture at the end of the Bible is one where God is wiping away the tears of those who have suffered, healing the hurts, the wounds that people have endured, holding us like a father holds his own child. When we sing these songs in a moment, that's the God that we're singing to. The God who is love. And so my encouragement to us today as we continue through the passion story is to just turn to him. Make a greater relationship with him today. You might not know how. You might be coming from a background where your faith was strong and it's dwindled, or maybe you just haven't ever really made relationship like you could. But that's what God wants. That's what you're made for. Confess your sins to him. Confess your weakness. Confess your failure. Thank him today. Praise him today. And for those that are here who've yet to make a relationship with God as the Bible 
defines it. Christ is the way into that relationship. He says in John 14, you should memorize this. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. First Timothy says that Jesus is the, the mediator between God and man. He is the one that will carry your hand into that relationship that you were made for. As Augustine says, and I think this is true of believers, not just those that have yet believed, he says man's heart will be forever restless until he finds his rest in God. Because that's what we were made for. We were made for that kind of love. That's why our culture is obsessed with love. That's why history will show you love is the greatest topic man has ever spoke on. We were made out of love and we were made for love. And God is ultimately where we find it and where we have the love to then share it with others. Amen.